Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Cochran. I interviewed Matt before, and I will link to that podcast in the notes. Matt is a DIY investor. He focuses on moats and growth companies. Today, we're going to talk about Peter Lynch. So Peter Lynch is an investing legend. He's one of the best investors of all time. He achieved a 29% return running the Magellan Fund from 1977 to 1990. U.S. stocks, in contrast, returned 12.9% during that period. So he crushed the market. Both of us recently read the book or reread the book, Beating the Street. We've read this before. And that's Peter's account of his time at the Magellan Fund. And he takes you through all of his investments that he made during that period and his investment philosophy. The book is very fascinating and I highly recommend it because it has some theory, but it's also heavy on real world examples of what he actually went through. So welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. Can't wait to talk about this book. It's uh, Peter Lynch was very fundamental when I was first getting into investing. So in my investing journey, like his his two books, uh, Beating the Street and One Up on Wall Street, were just they just I just understood it. Uh, it was they were easy for me to understand and like uh, like a good place for me to start. Absolutely, yeah. I had a pretty similar experience with him. It's funny. I've gone through a journey with him where. The buy what you know stuff. I at first I thought that was great, and then I went through a period where I thought, oh well, it's much more complicated than that. But looking back, if I bought stuff I liked, like Domino's Pizza and Costco, I probably would have had a much better investment track record. <laughs> There's something yeah, to absolutely. that. Absolutely, yeah. No, and I, I think like I mean I know we're going to get into this, but like his like his main th- like to me his main thing was like if you like the company, there's a good chance you'll like the stock. You know, and then like, just that's a good starting place. Like if you don't know where to start, you're getting into investing, like where where do I even begin? And he'll, he talks about like, I mean, the examples are a little dated now because he wrote these books in the, the early nineties, but he's like, people are into these like super esoteric companies that they don't really understand what they do, a biotech or a Chinese technology company. And he's like, just go, go down the street. What's your favorite restaurant? You know, does that have a stock? <laughs> you know, like to me, that's like. To me, that was a really good place to start, you know? A hundred percent. So first I thought we could talk about Peter and his story, get into his investment philosophy, and we could talk about real life experiences that he had. So the first thing I wanted to point out was I thought I was amazed with his work ethic and the amount of work he put into running the Magellan Fund. So he talks about how he would wake up at 6 a.m. every day. He was visiting companies. He was working all day. He was coming home late at night. He was working on Saturdays. He's there he was on con- Saturdays. The day after Christmas, he's calling a bank manager in a Midwest. Yeah. So just an incredible effort he was putting into achieving those returns. And I was just curious, like, what's your, what's your take on that? Well, my big takeaway, and I already told you this, but I mean, like like you said, he he crushed the market for 13 years. He's leading this mutual fund. He talked about like some opportunities he had if he wanted to go somewhere else or start his own fund. He could have pretty much done anything he wanted to do, and he just walks away from it. He just walks away from it. And, he, you know, uh, he talks about like, hey, you know, this fall, the, the last fall, I missed seven of my seven of the eight soccer games my daughter had. I, I saw some operas in the city, but I didn't get to watch college football during the year. And, you know, and he had something about like when you're when you're when you get to see more operas than you do your favorite college football team, like <laughs> he, he recognized something was out of balance in his life and he just walked away from it. He knew he had enough and, and he just walked away. And, and there's something, you know, Warren Buffett, I'm, I'm not trying to I'm not here to trash Warren Buffett, greatest investor ever, probably. But like when people ask these questions at the conferences or like for life advice, take your life advice from Peter Lynch, not Warren Buffett. The fact that he just was able to walk away from it, walk away from the parties, the influence, the attention, and just knew like, you know, my family and I have enough. I'm done. I want to spend more time with my family. I think there's a lot, there's a lot to that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think you get that lesson from a lot of like really successful billionaire kind of people. Like there's always something where there's something seriously defective in their personal life and they never have that concept of enough. Like, and it ends up doing damage. And Peter Lynch's quote was, he said, no one dies and says, I wish I spent more time in the office. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot to learn from that. Like once you have a certain amount of money, like, do you really need to keep like grinding and hustling and working 24 seven for more? Like probably not. Yeah, absolutely. No, so there's just the fact that, that he was able to walk away from it. And I think that was something like, like speaks a lot. I admire that about him. I think that's harder too. like, you know, you're a big shot on wall street. You know, I think his office was in downtown Boston and, but like, uh, you know, he, he could have done anything he wanted to do and he, he wanted to spend more time with his family. And he was pretty young. He was 46. So for yeah, an yeah. investment manager, that's, yeah. that's pretty young. I mean, that's how old I am. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, these investment guys, they often work until they're, 70s and 80s and uh, so it's kind of like i mean buffett at 46 it's like he's just getting started so yeah yeah for real for real yep yeah so we talked about a little bit about it in the beginning let's circle back to it so the most famous kind of peter lynch truism is buy what you know buy companies that you are familiar with and, and you're and you enjoy so what what's your take on that whole philosophy i think it's a great place to start so i i pulled it up here like this is one of the many many highlights and earmarks i have for these pages he goes and, and so it's important to know this isn't he's saying this isn't foolproof right mm-hmm. he, like he says he goes this technique is far from foolproof but i'd put it far ahead of buying stocks because uncle harry likes them and he he speaks very folksy like that <laughs> but he's like if you like this store chances are you'll love the stock what sells in town is almost guaranteed to sell in another, as it has with donuts, soft drinks, hamburgers, videos, nursing home policies, socks, pants, dresses, gardening tools, yogurt, and funeral arrangements. And I, I just think like, look, when you, especially when you're starting out, and this was so like helpful to me, like, where do you even start? You know, you have this universe of publicly traded companies. I think just the greatest place to start is it's like, hey, start investigating what you know, you know, like, and he talks about doing a lot of legwork too, which I I really like. He would go to the mall, watch where his daughter shopped. When he wanted to invest in super cuts, he went there and got a haircut. And he talks about cheating on his local barber (laughs) to get a haircut there. But like, just things like that. And like, he talks about like mall trips with his daughters and wife and like what was in fashion with them. And and like, I, I like the legwork behind it. I like it. It's just, it was, it's very, it was very helpful to me. Like, oh, I'm my wife and I, we buy a lot of stuff on Amazon. Let, let me check out Amazon stock. Oh yeah. I use Google an awful lot. Just things like that. I think it's a good place to start for anyone. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, if I went back in time and I just bought stuff I was into, I probably would have, would have done a lot better. Like I remember I was always running screens and looking into these super obscure companies. And like, meanwhile, I'm spending half of my money at Amazon. And right, right, right. right. No, no, there's software companies I bought and I could tell you like from a very high level what they did, but I couldn't really, you know, like, oh, that's human capital management software as a service. Well, what do they do? Well, like HR, software for HR. What does that mean? Well, software for HR. <laughs> 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 as opposed to like, oh yeah, like Domino's Pizza, it's cheap and it's really convenient. Absolutely. And I mean, another thing that I think we should add to this is Peter Lynch's, he also advocates research. So he's not advocating just go out and buy what you're into, but he talks about, in fact, he says, if you don't study any companies, you have the same success buying stocks as you do in a poker game. If you bet without looking at your cards. (laughs) 100%. And I think a lot of times like his message is oversimplified on social media. It's like, well, just Mm -hmm. buy what you know. And there's so much more to it than that. And he says that all the time, like in this book and his other book, like where he's like, yeah, you have to, you have to research these, these companies. Absolutely. Yeah. So the book begins where with a fun exercise where he meets with a bunch of seventh graders and they put together a portfolio. And I thought that was super interesting. It did very well that year. I think it was 1991. But I was also fascinated because it included a lot of companies that if you just kind of bought them back in the early 90s, they would have continued to do well. They've got Walmart, Nike, Disney, Pepsi, 
So there's some duds in there that probably didn't work out, but overall I thought it was a pretty good portfolio. So what, what was your take on the seventh grade portfolio? You know what's interesting? I just thought about this now, right right now, actually. I don't know why I didn't put this together first, but one about that, like reading Peter Lynch gave me the confidence that I could be like a decent stock picker early on too. I was like, oh, this guy says it doesn't have to be rocket science. Like this doesn't have to be like something so complicated. You have to hire a professional to manage your money. And it was first, it was Peter Lynch who first, and the Motley Fool too, but like gave me that confidence, like, hey, this can be done. It's not impossible for you to go out there and, and beat the market and manage your money successfully. But so, like, you, you know, what's funny is that like he talks about these seventh graders and they put together this portfolio. But like a, a lot of us, when, when I used to be at The Motley Fool, would uh, like talk about our kids portfolios and just reviewing companies with them and like saying like, you know, I have college accounts for my kids where they've picked the stocks. Mm. And those accounts have done so well. It's just, <laughs> like so basic, like, you know, what's hot right now is like, I watch YouTube all the time. So I want to buy Google or I want to like these video games are, are hot. Oh, Microsoft bought Minecraft. Oh, and you have to use Microsoft on all your computers. Like, yeah, let's buy Microsoft or uh, like N Nintendo, which I, maybe not the best example, but like, oh, everybody has Instagram at school. I want Instagram. You know, like my, my kids' portfolios have done really, really well. And a lot of my colleagues or former colleagues' kids' portfolios did really, really well because it was such a basic level. Like, yeah, Nike, you have to buy Nike. Everybody has Nike. And it's just a very, that basic understanding of like, yeah, this is popular. Let, I want to buy that stock. Maybe I should do a podcast with some seventh graders and we could uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, get their good portfolio. <laughs> so you mentioned Google, what, what other stock and Microsoft, what other stocks have they bought that have done really well? Well, so my, my son built his computer, right? And he knew he needed an NVIDIA. He wanted an NVIDIA chip. Mm. So he was like, I want NVIDIA. And he, my son, what he likes to edit videos and he has like a animation page on YouTube. And he, so he, he uses Adobe for that. So he has Adobe. So just, just things like that. Like they've just have a really good understanding of, of I have a colleague, Brian Withers, who I work with now. And his kids' portfolios have done like, I mean, they bought Chipotle. I mean, his kids are much older now, but they bought Chipotle like 15, 20 years ago and things like that. And, you know, they've just, most of the examples I could give of like where people, parents talk through their kids of a portfolio and like, so they could start understanding stocks have done sensationally well. Yeah, Chipotle is another one I missed. Like I had my first Chipotle burrito in like 07 and I was like, man, that that's awesome. <laughs> Never bought the stock. I should have probably looked into that. <laughs> Think about the when you first joined Netflix. You yeah. Know? And you never, I was like, this is so much better than Blockbuster. I get these red envelopes. It wasn't even before streaming, but I get these red envelopes and there's no late fees. And if I mm -hmm. didn't watch it this weekend, I'll just watch it next weekend. And it's great. I just have my queue and it was great. It was so much better than the Blockbuster experience of yeah. like, oh man, this movie's due tonight. So I got to watch it right now and then like put on my flip-flops and go down to the store to drop it off. Or otherwise they're going to charge me another five bucks. And did I ever buy Netflix? No. <laughs> yeah, same. I probably I probably started using Netflix 20 years ago in like 03. Yeah, yeah, yeah close. Yep. Yeah, and uh, never bought the stock. Absolutely loved it. Got addicted to it. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, right. Or, I mean, I have Amazon and I've had it for a long time, but like I, I was a prime member before I bought it. I could have bought it a few years earlier. Absolutely. Yeah. So another thing that he talks about with this whole philosophy of buying what you know and being able to explain things is he's big on, you have to be able to explain the idea in simple terms. So he writes, never invest in an idea you can't illustrate with a crayon. And then when he would have his analyst come into his office, he would set a timer for three minutes and they had to pitch the idea in three minutes. I thought that was a pretty good way to look at it. Yes, no, absolutely. Like he, he goes, talking about the crayon thing, he goes, surely it would have kept investors away from dense pack microsystems, a manufacturer of memory modules, the stock of which has fallen from $16 to 25 cents. Who could draw a picture of dense pack microsystem? And like, that that's what I was talking about. Like, again, the examples are a little outdated, but like, you get the point. Like a lot of times we're trying to like, we, we outsmart ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. And yeah, and I, I mean, I think if I stuck to that rule, I'd have a lot more success than going with some some of the more com- complicated ideas I've had. Like, yeah, the best things that have ever worked out for me have been things I could probably summarize in like a three minute pitch. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. So something I I wanted to ask you about. So how do you think of Peter Lynch? Do you think of him as a growth investor, a value investor? What what's your opinion on that? I've always thought of him as a growth investor, and that's mm-hmm. probably because I don't know if he would have thought of thought of himself like that, but that's probably because he got into uh, a lot of retailers and restaurants very early, and he talks mm-hmm. about that like he I think he loved that right when a a store started whether it's a clothing store or new restaurant idea started in the Northeast and it was going to expand across the nation in the slow and steady pace. Like those were the tailwinds he loved. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, so he talks about that a few times and he goes, look, they can grow at 15 to 20% earnings for, for years as that growth story gets started. And he talks about misses. Like he, you know, he, he liked the, like some deli near his office and it, it never did well or some gas station, but like overall, like he got into Home Depot early, he got into like, talks about super cuts, talks about the body shop. And like, I know there's several others. And so I've always thought of him as a growth investor because yeah. that's what I, when I really think, but then he talks about Fannie Mae and other things. And so I know it wasn't just growth, but fundamentally, I think he was. I always thought of him as a, as a growth investor too, but what I got rereading the book was I think he's really versatile and he can shift around between things. So he's buying out some industries. He, he's buying industries when they're really bombed out and he's buying like almost cyclical value plays. He's he's also investing in these kind of secular compounders. So I think he, he's a little bit of both. He bought treasuries when interest rates were really high. Yeah. Yeah. No, he True. was all over the place. And he said that was like part of the reason of his success was he had the freedom so like he didn't have to be pigeonholed because it was just any kind of capital appreciation he could go after. Yeah, that's a good point. And that was a point he made when he was talking about the active mutual fund business. So most mutual funds, like 90% of them underperform their benchmark. And he talked about that as they're kind of pigeonholed into a style. So it might not necessarily be an attractive style at that point in time, but with right. Magellan, he had the ability to kind of bounce around and do different things. Yeah, yeah. No, no, you're right. I think he was extremely versatile and he would just look for interest rates are going up. Oh, these these stocks do well when interest rates go up. Oh, interest rates are going down. Oh, these stocks. So he was always playing around. But I think I think he still loved those growth stocks, those retailers, those restaurants that were going to grow, like that were re- more regional and were, were expanding. Definitely. But, uh, but yeah, he was extremely versatile. So he ha- and so another thing he talked about in the book, I thought this was interesting because this is something like I always get into people with on Twitter. So whenever I talk about diversification, people will always say, oh, Peter Lynch owned a thousand stocks. So you can do wide diversification. My attitude is if you're going to have a thousand stocks, just buy an ETF. But he had this quote for individual investors, which I thought was very interesting in a contrast to that. He wrote, owning stocks is like having children. Don't get involved with more than you can handle. The part-time stock picker probably has time to follow eight to 12 companies and to buy and sell shares as conditions warrant. So what do you think about that? I think there's probably a lot of wisdom there. Look, so I'll, I'll just say, like, I know individual investors who are very concentrated. I know individual investors who are have cast that wide net and- I guess find what suits your style. Like, honestly, like I I think finding your style and and a strategy you can stick with that you're comfortable with is probably more important than finding the most optimal strategy there is. So if you're the type who can buy a hundred companies and you do whatever that initial research comes with at the beginning of that, but you're like, I'm just going to hold all of them. And some of them are just going to take off and that's going to make up for a whole bunch of losers I have. If that works for you, then then I then then great, right? Like I, I think that's that's fine, and but probably not for most people. Probably yes. I, I in fact, as I as I get older, like I'm trying to narrow my own stocks that I hold in my own portfolio right now. So I'm trying to like I was like international stocks. I've just gone to ETFs. Like why don't why am I messing? Like I want exposure there. Let me buy a few ETFs, and I've been considering that for a few other things too. I'm trying to whittle down my number of positions I hold. So right now that 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 spoke to me personally right now, just rereading the book. Like, you know, why do I really want to spend 
like when it, when researching stocks becomes a chore instead of something you enjoy, like I think mm -hmm. that's when you have to be like, hey, for for us part timers in this, where it's not my nine to five, that probably makes more sense in my life right now. And when I'm retired, maybe maybe I can uh, expand that again. But like, I, I kind of just want to go where with what I enjoy, and and then maybe outsource the rest to ETFs. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I, I mean, I've done some back testing there where. Basically, I mean, my conclusion pretty much aligned with what the academics say, which is that wealth kind of in diversified industries can get you to like as low as standard deviations can go. Optimally, it's probably somewhere between 20 and 30. And I'd say probably more than 30 is probably an ETF could probably do that. But yeah, I found pretty similar conclusions. And personally, I aim for 15 I think that's what I'm going for. I had a close to 40 stocks when I left seven investing six months ago, and I'm down to 26, 27 right now. Oh, okay. Well, that's so, and I want to get, I want to get lower. I want to get lower. Like, I, I, re I really want to like concentrate on my best ideas and then have just exposure to the market. Like, for instance, the defense industry. I've really, I've been researching the last few years like the defense industry. I never had exposure to that before that. And I'm like, there's something to be said maybe for having like exposure to this as a hedge against really bad things happening mm -hmm. in the world. And just because that's the world we live in. And then I was like, well, maybe this could be better served by an ETF. Mm. Like why, why am I, is it worth my research to try to figure out what are the best defense companies or as opposed to just having an ETF at whatever percentage I want that to be? So I get my exposure and then just call it a day and just leave it alone as an example. Yeah. And they're, they're great businesses. I mean, any company who sells to the US government primarily has a pretty amazing moat. That moat is probably not going to get disrupted and they don't have a lot of competition. I can't just tomorrow decide to start a firm making nuclear subs and fighter jets. So <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. I think they have a lot of wonderful advantages that are kind of unique to that industry. But do I need to be researching all the individual companies within the industry or can I just buy an ETF for the basically the same return? Mm -hmm. the, the kind of things I'm thinking through right now. So something else he did that I thought was very useful, especially today, he talks about weekend thinking, which is basically like kind of worrying about macroeconomic events. So you know, thinking about like 24-7 doom and gloom, he wrote, and as, as an example, he had like a Barron's Roundtable in 1987, and he talked about all the things that people were worried about, which sound a lot like things people are worried about today. He's talking about like global warming, terrorism, the AIDS crisis. He's talking about all these different things that people worry about on the weekend. And then he makes the point, he's like, you might not admit that you sold your gap shares because you were worried about like some macroeconomic thing. He's like, but that's what you did because you're worrying about it on the weekends. I'd say today it's more like 24 seven thinking because when you're plugged in the social media and Twitter, you're exposed to these takes all the time. So what, what did you think about that? So let me, let me read this. So he, he talks about his, and I'm going to get back to your point, but he talks about the Cotron, which was his computer, mm. the stock prices and charts. And he goes, the earliest version of the Cotron required you to type in a stock symbol and push the enter button before the current price would appear. Otherwise, the screen was blank. Later versions, which you've probably seen, display an entire portfolio and the prices for all the stocks, which are updated automatically as the day's trading progresses. The blank screen was a better system because you wouldn't stare at it all day and watch your stocks go up and down as many contemporary fund managers do. When I got a newfangled Quotron, I had to turn it off because it was too exciting. And I think about that, like we can, I would, we would consider that like watching the grass grow. I mean, that's so boring, like that system. And now what we have access to through Twitter, through our brokerage accounts, through like a million different sources we have and like how much noise are we mm -hmm. just like, like getting distracted by everything, the constant stream of headlines to your point, like I, I have to wonder, like, there has to be, like, we probably have lost something with all this access to information. So how much of it is noise as opposed to real signal, I guess? I probably need a better system to filter out noise. I get distracted on Twitter all the time when I'm mm -hmm. when I'm trying to do my stock research. I'm like, oh, let me 
somebody had posted a link to this report. I want to go find it. And then as soon as I get on Twitter, like 30 minutes goes by and I totally forgot why I even went on there in the first place. Because I just got <laughs> caught up in my timeline or a few notifications I had. So I just love how he's like, to me, that's just like, man, tune out this noise. Like turn it, like he turned off his computer that had just stock prices on it because it was just too much for him. And like, you just think about how much we have. I have like 50 tabs open on my computer right now with all different things. And yeah, I, I think there, there's way too much noise in our world. Yeah. Sometimes I think I'd be better off if I didn't have access to any of it. Like if you go back to the eighties, you think about like, okay, you had the wall street journal, you could look up the prices the next day. CNBC wasn't a thing. So you weren't seeing the symbols all the time. I probably would be better off if I just uh, had to look my prices up in the newspaper every once in a while and didn't even have access to all this information. Got your annual reports in the mail. And like, oh, it's time to catch up on this company. Yeah. Yeah, probably. It's probably a better way to do things. So another thing he said was the extravagance of any corporate office is directly proportional to management's reluctance to reward the shareholders. What did what did you think about that? And on, on the same lines, he said something like all, all things being equal, don't buy the company with the annual report full of color pictures. Hmm. Like uh, I think he talked about Taco Bell, how like when he visited it, it had this like headquarters in the kind of like a skeezy part of town and it was like run down. And he's like, I loved it. <laughs> he's like, I loved it. <laughs> like these people were all about like the business and like they didn't care about the fancy corporate headquarters. I don't know. So like, let me. I think there's wisdom there, but I'll just take the other side of it real quick. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at the headquarters like Apple built for its employees or Alphabet, and I think there's something to certain types of companies that need to hire real talent, like mm -hmm. especially in the software world. And like if that's a way to attract talent, then that might be money well spent. I mean, it, it seems like – I mean, I, I have a lot of exposure to big tech, and I'm not – convinced that their fancy headquarters with all the perks that they offer their employees is all waste. There's a lot of it there that I'm like, do they need full-time masseuses there for all the software coders? Like, <laughs> I kind of think no, but at the same time, like, I, I think they need to attract top talent too. So if that's the kind of thing that can help them attract talent, then maybe it's well spent. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just willing to like, consider that argument too yeah sentiment on that seems to follow the stock price so it's like 2022 people are like why are they wasting money on this junk <laughs> when it's good oh well. <laughs> the stock price going up forgives a lot of evil right yeah yeah 100 i mean like but those big tech companies like they have the, the, all things being equal they have pretty great operating margins is there corporate bloat there of course i'm not sure if it's it, where I'm the best person to decide where that bloat is. So, and of course I want them to have top talent too. So I don't, I don't know. I guess like, I, I wouldn't make that like a, a hard and steadfast rule to look at companies with handsy. I mean, it would keep you out of Apple, right. Or alphabet. I mean, which, or a lot of these companies, which I don't think maybe you shouldn't be out of. So. Yeah. And I mean, it is, I guess the, way to look at it is we are in a much more competitive world for top tier labor. So now more than ever, if you have a great software engineer, they're going to be offered more opportunities than they ever have at any time in history. So probably makes sense to reward them and try to get the best ones. Taking it to a different world, like I follow college football and like the top programs, they have amazing, amazing facilities for their athletes. I mean, they're almost like a, like playgrounds, right? Like just yeah. like amazing playgrounds where there's like food and drink and games and it's all fun and nice. And if that's what they have to spend money on, that's whether they should be spending that money on sports or academics is a different discussion. Mm -hmm. But like, if that's what they have to spend, if that's your program that you're rooting for, and if that's the the money they have to, if that's the money they have to spend to attract that talent, You'd be like, oh, yeah, you got to build facilities to compete. Our program's getting behind Clemson or Alabama or LSU. So you you want your program to compete with them. They need better facilities. And so if you translate that to the corporate world, I mean, there's I think there's probably something to that. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Well, also, I'll also say though, the other side of me will say that there's corporate bloat there and I wish they would cut it out. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just go back and forth on it. Well, college football is tough because they can't play the pay- the players directly. So they have to invent all yeah, kinds yeah, of ways to right. attract talent. You're right. You're right. Um, I don't know. Right. No, no, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. It's not a perfect analogy. Yeah, it's it's a tough, tough thing to do. So something else I want to talk about. So uh, in terms of valuation, so there's Peter Lynch has a very simple view of value. Like he doesn't go out and really get super complex with it. He's talking about P ratios. He's talking about looking at the P ratio relative to the growth rate. Another thing he does is he puts the earnings trend on one axis and then the stock price on the other. And basically that's how he looks at whether the stock's under or overvalued. He's like, is it way above the earnings trend? Because his, his the way he looks at it is over the long run, stocks follow earnings. So what was your take on that of, of his valuation methods? It's probably rudimentary, a little simple. Like I, I wonder if that's all his secrets there or he was just trying to be like, keep it on a high level. Mm-hmm. But I also think 40... 30, 40 years ago, it was probably easier to be more simple with valuation because the access to information wasn't as uh, widely accessible as it is now. But I think it's generally right. (laughs) I mean, he also talked about balance sheet and other things too. But yeah, he wanted earnings growth. Like I think like in one part, he's like, I just want the like the earnings growth, like if 20%, then I want the PE ratio to be about 20. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want the P ratio to be 40 if the earnings growth is 20%. Like, in like, same thing, like, if the earnings growth is 10%. So that was, like, his thinking. Like, he wanted earnings growth to be higher than the P-E ratio. And that's pretty, that's probably pretty simple. Yeah. And another thing to consider, too, is valuations when he started were just so dirt cheap. Like, he's talking about buying stocks at P's between, like, three and six and just wild stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah, I it, it definitely it definitely is a a simpler way to look at. It. I I don't think you don't get the impression though he was too concerned about the valuation as long as it was like in his mind just generally in the range of acceptable, <laughs> right? Yeah, so he talks so that's a good thing to talk about. So he talks about how he would check up on companies every six months. So and he recommends that for the. DIY stock picker is that basically you should do this exercise where you wait six months and then you check up on the company. So what do you think about that? Do you think that's too infrequent? Do you think it's too much? Like, what do you think about the six month checkup? Well, going back to the break, there's probably too much noise, but mm-hmm. I think following your company's day to day and like the latest headline, like, Oh, Amazon's doing this or, Oh, Shopify's doing this now. And Oh, that, that might be too much. I don't know. I personally like every quarter to at least go through the quarterly reports, right? And, and the conference call. Like, I would say at least do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. You, you follow the quarterly results and then you check in. And yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Someone who I think is super interesting, you, Eddie Elfenbean. Yeah. 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 Of course. He does, the th- he only does trades in his fund on January 1st. Like once a year, you can do your trades. And then I think he restricts it to, I can only sell and buy a certain number of companies. So I thought that was, and that seems to have produced pretty decent results. No, he's done very well. Lynch talks about like having like regular buys or regular times to buy is probably better than to be impulsive. If it takes out your worst impulsive instincts, it it might be a good idea. Something that's helped me is just adding money to the stock market every month. And just buying it then. And whatever I think is like the companies I follow is that the best value I try to buy. Or if I'm trying to build up a position because I really like a company. But like it's not, I don't try to trade interweek or during the day or anything like that. It's usually just buys. And it's usually like when I put my money in at the month, at the beginning of the month. Yeah. All right. So I thought we could talk about some of the specific investments that he made. So the company that he says was one of the most important to Fidelity's returns was, or to Magellan's returns was Fannie Mae. So this is a super interesting story. So Fannie Mae, basically in the 70s, what they used to do was they used to buy mortgages directly and keep them on their books. And the market looked at it as just an interest rate play. 
Then Fannie Mae in the early 80s, the yield curve got crazy inverted where short-term rates were extremely high and longer-term rates were lower than that. And Fannie Mae was consistently losing money. Then they moved to a securitization model where they would go out and actually start building these pools of mortgages and selling them to banks. And that result was like rocket fuel for, for the stock. And Peter Lynch was there while they were doing extremely well. Warren Buffett was also a Fannie Mae investor. And it was a great growth stock until we all know what happened in 2008. It all, it all blew up. I don't know if they got out by that point. But what did you think about his uh, Fannie Mae investment? Now, I think like, like I highlighted a lot in this chapter. So if you forgive me for reading another excerpt, but he was talking, I, I think there's a higher principle here too. He goes, a company does not tell you to buy it. There's always something to worry about. There are always respected investors who say that you're wrong. You have to know the story better than they do and have faith in what you know. And so he's talking about this transformation and how it's like traditionally been an interest rate play but how when they started packaging these mortgages together and selling them as mortgage-backed securities, like he's like, that was transforming the company, but people didn't see it, or very few people saw that. And like, just like, and this is long before the mortgages were bad or anything like that. I mean, this is decades before 2008, but he was just saying like, oh, look, they're doing something new and this is going to like completely transform this company. And he was in it years before, like it moved. In fact, at the end of this, he goes, and so it, like it only it finally paid off in 1989, but he's talking about like his diary of this stock goes back to the 77. But he goes, as so often happens in the stock market, several years worth of patience was rewarded in one because the stock like more than doubled in 1989. And he's like, it finally paid off. It was like it took forever for this for people to see this market, but like it, it finally paid off in the late 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh it was, he said it was the best business in America. So and I, that, that was right at the time. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, I think he started buying it like $5 and it ended up in the forties. So he did pretty well with it. So what would you like, what would your takeaway be? So we all know it happened to Fannie Mae. So say you were like a long-term investor in Fannie Mae, how could I think it's a good example of why you can't adopt a strict never sell philosophy. Like you need to be able to kind of adapt. And as the company changes, maybe revisit the thesis. So what, what do you think about that? I think you're probably right. Yeah. And this is something like I'm evolving on as we speak, but just uh, speaking for myself, like I had, uh, I had several stocks in the COVID run up that did spectacularly well, spectacularly well. And if I had sold them, anywhere near the top. I mean, like huge, huge home runs, right? Like I could brag about on Twitter, like whatever, and and obviously personally profit from them. And I held on to them. And so now like they're at the same price they were when I bought them seven or eight years ago. Mm. And so I'm trying to, I want to be a long, very, very biased towards long-term holding, but there probably, there is a time to sell most stocks. And I think I have to do a better job of that. And then there's some stocks so I'll just throw out one because, and I, so I had many round trippers, which I'm not proud of. I've held them, for, they were 10 baggers and more, and now they're back to like where I started. Mm -hmm. So, But there, there was a few that like, so Shopify, I sold near the top and I was like a spectacular success for me, but the, because the valuation was just so overstretched, I just couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. Like I was just literally like, this, this doesn't make sense on any level. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I sold it, but I wish I had done that with, I wish I had been more discerning with my, with some other companies. And I, I think never sell is probably a little too provocative. That's, that's meant for Twitter and it's provocative, but I think it's a little, I think never sell is more aspirational than prescriptive. Like when you buy a company or when I buy a company, I should say, when I buy a company, the goal is to never sell it. It'd be great to buy this company and pass on the stock to my to my kids one day. Or like because it was Coca-Cola. You could have bought Coca-Cola or McDonald's or Walmart. And there's a few other companies that you could have held for decades and decades and decades. And they would have been great, great investments the whole way through. But most companies are not like that. Most companies are the Kodak, the IBM, the you know, stocks that have their glory days and were great, but then they, that passes them, like Sears. 
there's many companies that like see an expiration date and one day all companies will see an expiration date, right? So yeah, I think that you, you have to verify the story. And while never sell is aspirational, I need to remind myself of that. Like I don't need to hold on to never sell as a religious dogma. It's not my religion. It, it's more like a rule of thumb. Like, Hey, if, if, if in doubt, if you're having doubt or the headlines are bad, hold through that. I, mm-hmm. You know, especially when like you can, especially when you're like, hey, these are short-term clouds. Oh, the economy took a downturn and companies are a little more cautious on cloud spending. I don't need to sell Amazon or Microsoft because the next year cloud spending is going to be, companies are cutting back on their cloud spending. Those are the kinds of things you can hold through. But like Fannie Mae is a great example, like where, hey, these mortgages are just rotten. And I don't know, I'm not saying I could have seen that coming. But like where you like, hey, the housing market is out of control and Fannie Mae's holding all these mortgages. Maybe I need to sell this company if theoretically I'd held for decades and have huge gains on, at least start taking some off the table. So I, I think that I, I've been doing a lot of introspection on that. And like I, I need to remember never sells more aspirational and not my not my religion, not dogma. There's nothing that like I'm not going to get in trouble. It's not a sin. <laughs> to sell a stock at a big profit. Yeah, you don't have to go go to the confession. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. About, I sold, exactly. I sold yeah, a exactly. stock. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, so, and it, you, it, it, how do you take that? My take on it is like, I agree with you. I think never sell is aspirational, but I think it's unrealistic for most businesses because I think even some of the best businesses that have ever been around have can go to zero. And I think Fannie Mae is a perfect example of that. People today might not be totally aware of this, but yeah, if you read this book and you see the returns that Fannie Mae generated for almost three decades, it looked like Microsoft, like it looked like one of these great companies we see today. General Electric, probably another example in in the 80s and 90s of just this stock that just did tremendous things. And yeah, no company... No company is infallible. No company is is completely resistant to disruption. And I think it makes sense to pare back when the valuation gets stretched. I think it makes sense to revisit the thesis every now and then and make sure that the company is doing well. I think just having this mechanical attitude where you're absolutely never going to sell a stock is unreasonable. But it's aspirational, like you point out. Like It would be nice to be able to do that. Right. I think, I mean... Is it a Munger quote or Buffett quote? Like our preferred holding time is forever. Preferred is the key, key. word that often gets overlooked. Like, and uh, you glance over that and you're like, yeah, hold it forever. Like I'm buying stocks forever. And by the way, like going back to my Motley Fool days, but I have colleagues who are like, yeah, I just hold stocks forever because the winners that I have will eventually, like I'll have a few winners and everything else will be bad or be okay, but not great. But like the winners are going to make up for the losses. And if that's your philosophy, I'm not trying to like, you know, again, I think doing what works for you is probably better than the most optimal strategy there is. Because if that's something that you can hold on to in the bad times, like so you're not selling out at every market market downturn can work. But just I've been doing introspection on that. And I, I need to take that more into account. Yeah. And I'm big on checklists. So checklist to buy. I also think there should be a checklist to sell. So you think about like the reasons I would sell would be, is the moat permanently impaired? So I don't want to sell because I'm like, oh, I'm worried about a recession next year, but right. I will sell if I think the moat is gone. Another reason the sell would be valuation. So Coke is probably a good example of that. Coke reached a wild valuation in like 1998 it, it was like 30, 40% of Berkshire's portfolio. He was able to basically use Berkshire stock as currency to buy General Re to dilute that because he didn't want to sell out of it. For us, we could just sell it. So right. I think it makes sense to have some conditions for first. Yeah. Time. And the valuation one's tough because it's like, <laughs> like in my mind now. And so I'm trying to like crystallize a better rule. But it's like when, when you, we have these bubbles like we did after COVID, mm-hmm. when this, valuations are just ridiculous. I think that's a great time to buy. However, I never, I don't want to be like checking Microsoft price and saying like 25 earnings is good, but 30 or 30 times earnings, you got to sell it. There has to be some leeway there, but but you are right. There has to be, but where do you draw that line? And I don't know. 
I don't know. And maybe it just takes them off the table. Like if it gets to 35 times earnings, start to trim it down. And then when it gets back to 25 times earnings, start to add it again or whatever. I'm just kind of making up numbers, but something like that. That's basically what I did with Meta. So, you know, Meta has been, I bought it cheap. It did great. When it, it, it it's now out of valuation where I'm a little nervous. So the compromise I reached was I'll pair it back a little bit and then I'm still going to hold it. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think that's, I, I, I need to crystallize rules like that for myself. And I'm, I'm trying to go through that process. Yeah. Okay. So another investment I thought was interesting was Taco Bell. So he bought Taco Bell back in the seventies. He wrote... Taco Bell I liked because of its tasty tacos, because 90% of the country had not yet been exposed to tasty tacos, and because the company had a good record, strong balance sheet, and a home office that resembled a neighborhood garage. So what do you think about his Taco Bell investment? Yeah, I, I highlighted so much in this restaurant chapter. So yeah, there's there's Taco Bell, Dunkin' Donuts, Cracker Barrel, all growth restaurant stories that he uh, got in on early and kind of rode. So like, it's funny because I generally stay away from restaurant stocks because I'm like, well, what's the moat? Like easy for, a comp- if you're a pizza shop, it's easy for someone else to make another pizza shop. So what's the real moat there? But I really liked, he talked about some advantages it has. And so I'm going to re- read this real quick. A restaurant chain, like a retailer, has 15 to 20 years of fast growth ahead of it as it expands. This is supposed to be a cutthroat business, but the fledging restaurant company is protected from competition in a way that an electronics company or a shoe company is not. If there's a new fish and chips chain in California and a better one in New York, what's the impact of the New York chain on the California chain? Zero. It takes a long time for a restaurant company to work its way across the country. And meanwhile, there's no competition from abroad. Denny's or Pizza Hut never has to worry about low cost Korean imports. You know, it's like, and then he talks about like a few things for your checklist. We'll continue to separate the triumphs from the flops among the restaurant changes, capable management, adequate financing, methodical approach to expansion. You know, he gives off a few things. And I think those are like hints of what he's looking for. But he talks about Chili's too, like another one. Like his daughter wanted to start eating at Chili's. And he talked that he contrasted Chili's to Fuddruckers. And I thought that was interesting. And like how Fuddruckers like tried to expand too fast and they had like a slightly different style. Their balance sheet wasn't as good. And Chili's was like more methodical expansion and kind of why, why Chili's succeeded and Fuddruckers didn't. But, uh, yeah, and he talked about how Fuddruckers was more focused on uh, burgers and Chili's had a more diverse menu. and Chili diversified away from burgers as it grew and Fuddruckers didn't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I, I guess with the restaurants, you have that, if you can get them early enough, like if for our time, it would have been Chipotle, like that would have been a Shake great Shack thing. Or something. Like, it made me think about Shake Shack. Like, I don't like the valuation of it, but it's like, wow, well, you know, it probably does have a lot of expansion ahead of it. Yeah, if you look at the store count and think yeah. like, okay, yeah. well, yeah. what could this possibly grow into? And then the other nice thing about the United States in particular is that U.S. tastes are pretty homogenous across the board. So if something is going to succeed in Chicago, well, it's probably going to succeed everywhere else. Like right. If- right. Yeah. He talks about that. He's like, a burger that tastes, I forget exactly, but he's like, a burger that tastes good in New York, it's going to taste good in Chicago. It's going to taste taste good in the South. It's going to taste good in California. Like a donut shop, you talk about Dunkin' Donuts a little bit. Yeah, I thought those were interesting. I thought that was it. When I read that, I was like, that's, I never thought about that. But that that is interesting. There, there's certain advantages to the restaurant industry. And then he talked about uh, Cracker Barrel. I thought that was a pretty interesting one because Cracker Barrels at the time, like now they're everywhere, but back then it was still a newer concept and he kept seeing them pop up at like highway exits and stuff. Yeah, they have this gift shop and it's like that's extra margins for and extra sales for them. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, if you can get a good concept early enough, it's definitely worthwhile. Yeah. So another one I thought was pretty interesting and this ties into the buy what you know thing was King World Productions. So they made uh, game shows. So they made like Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. And if you watch the whole episode at the end, it'll, it used to always say King World Productions. And that was another buy what you know thing. Like he's there watching Jeopardy at night. <laughs> right. Wheel of Fortune World. and Jeopardy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, it, like, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, just how he would find things like that. And, you know, now you have, 
I think now we're living in an age of like more conglomerates mm -hmm. where it's, I think it's hard to find maybe some of these smaller companies or they don't go public for, they go public. It takes longer for them to go public because they can get so much financing in the private equity markets. But it is interesting how he found so many gems like that. Yeah. So he also would go into some more cyclical situations. I thought a very interesting one was Chrysler. So in the early 1980s, we have this brutal recession because Volcker took interest rates high, all the autos got crushed, and then he was able to find kind of the best-in-class operation at the time, which was Chrysler, and it was right before they invented the minivan. Minivans were... Uh, Minivans yeah. were a brand new concept back then, and he kind of rode that wave. So what did you think about the Chrysler investment? Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome for him to read and talk about like how General Motors was the dominant auto company. And he had a small position in General Motors, but he's like, this. It, you visit there, there's nothing exciting. And people didn't like the cars, and it just didn't sit well with him to like have a big position there, even though they were dominant. And then he talked about Chrysler and looking at their balance sheet, like, hey, can they survive a downturn? Because it's priced, it was basically priced like they're going bankrupt. But they had like Lee Iacocca came in and had all these ideas. And to me, the minivan is a great, it's a great example of like uh, something like, like I like to call optionality, like where a company has this like, hey, if this were if something like this works out, this is whole other revenue stream this company can bring in on top of its what what right now is its core business. And optionality is something I try to look for in companies. Like, hey, maybe it doesn't work out. And so you just try to try price the stock on the existing business. But if it has these ideas that might turn into something, that's something I do like to look for. So I, I thought I was like, oh yeah, that's like that's like optionality. I like that. So great example. And another auto company he invested in was Volvo. So I thought that was pretty interesting because it was an international stock. It was trading for the cash on the balance sheet at the time. And he actually went over and he checked it out and he thought it was a great operation and they made good cars. I thought that was that was another pretty interesting auto investment that he made. Yeah. As simplistically or as simply as he talks about valuation, he talks about the balance sheet a lot. Like it probably more than I he probably has a higher priority on the balance sheet than I do in investing. And it's something like he was always like okay, a cyclical stock especially, he's like, does it have enough cash on its balance sheet to survive the next downturn? Like, it does. Okay, so Chrysler is not going to go bankrupt, or at least not for another three or four years. And can it turn around in that time? Because right now it's priced like it will go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Like Volvo. Oh, look at the cash on its balance sheet. Like, he talks about the balance sheet an awful lot. And I don't think you see that too often today. Like the balance sheet is almost, or it seems like it's almost overlooked a lot. Yeah, and it is useful. Like I've done backtesting where I've looked at, for instance, just a simple backtest on the debt to equity ratio. Now, most people would say, oh, debt to, debt, debt to equity, what a waste of time. Like there's intangibles, there's blah, blah, blah. But I found it limits drawdowns. Like if you limit your universe to, say, companies with a debt to equity below 100% or below 50%, 2008 rolls along, all of those companies held up much better than the broader market. So I agree. I think the balance sheet is super important. Yeah, no, he talked about he talked about it a lot for sure. I liked what he talked about cyclical. I mean, this is something I have learned, but it mm -hmm. took me a while to learn. And I know I read this like early on, but I just glossed over it, I guess. But he talked about like how like the PE ratios for cyclicals, like when they're low, like that's a good sign for any company. But like for cyclicals, it's the opposite, right? Because when it's low, that probably means earnings are just really high and the market's already anticipated earnings are going to come down. When the PE ratio is high, like it just means like earnings are low, but that earnings are just going to come up. Like, I, again, it's, not, it's something I already knew, but I wish I had learned that sooner. Me too. So it was my Achilles heel for a long time. <laughs> I've fallen for that. <laughs> I was always like, oh, wow, the P is four. This has to be great. And exactly. it's not so great. Exactly. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, that was super interesting. I found a good antidote to that is to look at trending and price the sales and price the book. So if you see this attractive P ratio, look at 20 years of price to book ratios and see where it lands on that. Oftentimes, if it's super cyclical, you'll find, oh, the P is low, but it's at an all-time high in price to book or price to sales relative to where it normally trades. So that's a pretty pretty good way to do it. So another interesting investment that he talks about was great companies in lousy industries Textbook example of that 
Southwest Airlines. Airlines are just a notoriously terrible industry, but Southwest has stood out as, as a company that can succeed. So what did you think about that philosophy of great companies and terrible industries? Yeah, you know, I'm going to be honest. It's not something I really do. Mm-hmm. I'm, not saying, I'm not saying he's wrong, though. Like, I, I generally look for tailwinds in an industry than, than headwinds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i like it when like in my mind like if you can add up inflation and gdp growth plus tailwinds in an industry plus like maybe just even a little market share capture like all of a sudden you have a pretty good growth stock so that being said like i mean he made some good points like you can find a lot of looked over gems in these industries that aren't dying they're just slowing or if they are dying it's a very very slow slow death I think right now, like you could look at energy or oil, like people are like, oh, oil, it's gone. No, like we're going to <laughs> green energy. And yet we're obviously going to be using oil for decades and decades, if not a century or more to come. There's probably something to that. Like when, when he talked about that, I was thinking about the oil industry now. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think you make an important distinction when you talk about lousy industry versus industry that's in decline. So airlines are a lousy business. You're going to earn low returns on capital, but it's not an industry in secular decline. Like in 20 years, people will still be going on airplanes. So Right, right, right. And same for oil. Like I don't think oil is in secular decline yet. And there's probably good companies in, in that industry. Right. Yeah. Okay. And I thought, so the last one we're going to talk about here, I thought this was interesting. Early nineties, there's this savings and loan crisis. There were all these SNLs that popped up in the eighties. They went out and bought a bunch of junky debt. They, a bunch of them collapsed, needs a bailout by the federal government. He goes in in the early nineties and actually picks out a basket of cheap SNLs that all did fantastically. What'd you think about how he played the SNL crisis? So you talked about like, there's there's three types of SNLs, right? Mm-hmm. So there's the bad guys. Those are the fraud guys. There's the greedy guys that ruined a good thing. And then he said the Jimmy Stewart's. Yeah. Like, st- stupid me. Like, I'm just like, sometimes I'm really stupid, but like the name of the chapter is It's a Wonderful Buy. And I didn't realize that's a play on It's a Wonderful Life until just right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but yeah, he loved the SNLs and he made a, a lot of money and he goes to so Jimmy Stewart SNLs are my favorites. They quietly been making a profit all along. These are the no frills, low cost operators who take in deposits from the neighborhood and are content to make old fashioned residential mortgage loans. They can be found in small cities and in towns across America and, you know, goes on, but just like, yeah, that's, he was looking for those. And talked about like, uh, he called one on like, was it the day after Christmas or the day before Christmas or something? And he's like, t- they were having their holiday party or something. And he's like, <laughs> hey, get the CEO. I want to talk to them. And, you know, and uh, and he would just talk about like, well, y- yeah, you guys have more commercial loans than normal. Why is that? You know, and he would just talk to them and try to like poke, gently poke at them and see what's going on. And But he loved the SNLs. Yeah. I thought that company. I thought it was great. And I think it's a good template to think about an industry that's bombed out that just went through some trouble and then find some some good players in that industry and then try to buy them. I think that's a that's a pretty good approach. So, I mean, after reading the book, after going through these examples, my last question, are you do you think it's possible to do today what Peter Lynch did back then? Okay. I think <laughs> There's obviously some differences, right? And I, you can make the same argument. Like sometimes people say, well, Buffett couldn't do what Buffett did mm-hmm. today. Like if he's starting out today. But so like, I don't know if you can do the exact same thing. I think there's a lot of important takeaways though you can take from it. I think like doing the legwork or whatever you want to call it. Like, hey, do you like Starbucks coffee? Like, hey, are are the Chipotles in my area? Like now they're not as well managed or like you see pictures of... uh like late, I'm just giving a quick example because I just saw it. So I'm not trying to make a, an extrapolation on the company, but like, uh, like yesterday, like somebody was posting pictures at target and there was empty shelves and he's like, what's going on with target lately. I think there's something to that though. Like, Hey, maybe like this company is like facing some problems right now. And, and just, mm-hmm. just by using your own eyes and your own preferences, like, Oh, I don't go to Chipotle anymore because it's dirty or something like, and I'm not I'm just as an example. Yeah. Or I'm not, not, I don't go to that restaurant as much as I used to, or I used to 
order Domino's, but now I don't. Or I used to like Starbucks, but now I like this shop better. Like, I think like that's a, that can be a really good starting place and a really good hint. Like maybe, maybe I need, if I'm holding that stock or if I was interested in it, like, wait a second, let me, let me, let, let me dig a little deeper. Let me check this out. Now, there might be something to that. And you don't want to take one example. Like you talked about getting a bad haircut at Supercuts and saying, but I still like the stock and I still bought it and still did okay with it. Like you don't want to take one anecdote example as like, as the Bible. But I think it's just something like it's a clue and it's just something to be like, ah, oh, let me, maybe I need to check this out a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's possible. Like I, I absolutely have talked about a number of kind of consumer companies that I think have done well over the last 20 years. I think your average person could have discovered and, and bought, whether it's Apple or Chipotle or Amazon or Microsoft. And I definitely think... I'm not sure if you do it exactly like Lynch did it, but I think those these lessons are still relevant today. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's a, a lot of great takeaways you can take from the book that will help you in, in investing. All right. So the book is Beating the Street. Highly recommend it. Peter Lynch wrote it early 90s. I, I would highly recommend you check out this book. You'll learn a lot from it. And before we wrap up, Matt, is there anything you'd like to add about things you're working on today or, or things you want to uh, talk to people about? Yeah. So, I mean, just real quick, thank you, by the way. Like I, I've joined Long-Term Mindset, which is just a, a financial education company that like demystifies the stock market. And they basically, they, they put on classes for different things about like, if you want to manage your own money, I think they are definitely worth checking out. And you can go to financialstatements.school, which is a class about reading financial statements and going through the cash flow statement, the balance sheet, the income statement, and like really what each line means and the significance of each line. And we also have evaluation.school, which just talks about companies at different phases in their life from like new IPOs to mature or declining companies. It may be like different ways to value the companies depending on where they are in their life cycle. And look, I mean, I've taken the classes. I think they're excellent. So to check it out, valuation.school or financialstatements.school. And we also have free newsletters. So if you go to matthewcochraninvest.com, you can sign up for some of our free educational newsletters that we send out. Very nice. Well, th thank you for your time today. I think this is a great discussion. Uh, thanks for having me. Always love chatting with you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.